This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which by the very nature of our being a Thursday afternoon program every year on the final Thursday in November, necessarily becomes our annual Thanksgiving program. So, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. We realize that if you're listening to this program on the radio at the moment, you're probably driving to a Thanksgiving dinner somewhere. If you're lucky, that is. Of course, we like to point out every Thanksgiving that life does go on and that some people have to man their stations at hospitals, police stations, firehouses, and, of course, radio stations. So we do like to salute you people who are doing your duty every year. And try to make a point for our holiday show to be a little more lighthearted than we might otherwise be in these troubled times. A special item we'll have on today's program is something that Mr. McMillan dug out of uh, storage, I guess you might say. For some reason, a segment I recorded some years back with my neighbor in Fremont, John Lissack, about his participation in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, never got aired on this program. We're going to correct that deficiency today. It turns out that on Valentine's Day 2016, NBC Sports will be airing a special on the 36 Olympics. Well, they will present some of the interviews with people who participated in that uh, historic Olympics. And thankfully, John will be one of those participants. Yours truly was there when the NBC team came in and I was able to watch uh, them in action as they conducted about a 45-minute long interview with John. I was shocked to to learn in retrospect that our, we only did 10 minutes with him some years back, but we're going to go and correct that deficiency hopefully this coming weekend by rounding out uh, what he had to say both to us and to NBC and, and basically just, just let it roll because John is a great storyteller and he's got some great stories. So we look forward to doing that in the weeks to come, but we will be, um, re- we will be broadcasting for the first time what we do have with John in our third segment today. And uh, in our second segment today. We're going to air an interview that Graham Smith recorded a few weeks back with Lester Lusher. He's a PhD student here at UC Davis, and Graham spoke with him about his work on the effect the shared ethnicity between students and teaching assistants has on grades. And uh, frankly, I'm keen to hear that one. Graham has been doing a great job uh, hosting the best of Radio Parallax, and we thank him for that. It's a great pleasure to be here on KDVS after 13 and one half years. And uh, we're not done yet. But let us start today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date is the 26th of November. Now, oddly enough, I don't know that we can say that Thanksgiving Day took place on this date because it seems rather imprecise looking back on, uh, on that first celebration back in, what was it, 1621? I'm not really sure, frankly, but we can note with some greater degree of precision that it was on this date in 1941 that President Franco Delano Roosevelt signed a bill officially establishing the fourth Thursday in November as Thanksgiving in the United States. Now, of course, the tradition of celebrating the holiday on a Thursday dates back to the early history of the Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay colonies. It turns out that two years earlier, in 1939, Roosevelt departed from tradition by declaring November 23rd which was the next to the last Thursday that year, as Thanksgiving Day. Considerable controversy surrounded this deviation, and some Americans refused to honor his declaration. 
After two years, FDR admitted his mistake and signed the bill, officially making the last Thursday in November the national holiday. Now, Ms. McMillan has a story which I cannot verify, but it does come from the New York Times, which is oftentimes reliable, that apparently merchants lobbied FDR very heavily in 39 to make it the third Thursday so they would have more time for Christmas shopping. Of course, knowing the merchants here in America, as I do, I think that's just awfully far-fetched. They're, they're not that greedy sort of people. Good God. We're only going to mention Black Friday once because we're horrified by the very concept. Of course, some other things did happen on uh, November 26th. We do note that the English captain, James Cook, discovered the island of Maui in the then Sandwich Islands, which, of course, were later renamed as the Hawaiian Islands. And I got to say, if you're going to sail around and discover something, Maui, it's not a bad choice. And on November 26th in 1927, the Ford Motor Company announced the introduction of the Model A. It was the first new Ford to enter the market since the Model T, introduced in 1908. With prices starting at $460, nearly 5 million Model A's in several body styles and a variety of colors rolled onto America's highways until production ended in 1931. Although my understanding was that sometime in the 30s or 40s, I presume the 30s, Ford sold the manufacturing equipment to the Soviet Union, which evidently continued to crank out Model A's for some time afterwards. I'm particularly fond of this item because yours truly learned to drive on a Model A. A torn-up old jalopy flatbed version of the Model A was a truck. We used to drive it around the orchard. They really did build those things. And in one item that today I think we're just going to take the position the less said about the better, we note that it was on November 26th in the year 2000 that the Florida Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, certified Governor George W. Bush as the winner in the state's presidential election. And that is all we're going to say about that black day in history. Our quote of the day comes from the Rolling Stone article by Matt Taibbi about the Republican presidential race. The piece is titled, The Clown Car Rolls On. And the quote is Matt Taibbi's repetition of what, what headline appeared in New York Magazine. Taibbi described it as perhaps the single funniest headline presidential politics has ever seen. You can be the judge of that, dear listener, but the headline is as follows. Ben Carson defends himself against allegations that he never attempted to murder a child. And we like this Tybee piece so much, we're going to quote rather extensively from it, uh, probably later on in this segment. Our quip of the day comes from British MP Enoch Powell, who once said, For a politician to complain about the press is like a ship's captain complaining about the sea. Our stat of the day is that although the hedge fund industry as a whole lost 1.6% in the year ending in September, it turns out that managers of mid-sized portfolios are projected to have an average annual salary of $950,000. I think we'll throw in a bonus stat for today, which is that just five companies earned 70% of the $300 billion in revenue generated by all internet companies over the past year. Facebook, Amazon, Google holding company Alphabet, eBay, and QVC owner Liberty Interactive are those five companies. For our good news item of the program, we have this. Taco Bell announced last Monday its plan to serve cage-free eggs in all of its U.S. restaurants by the end of 2016, joining other major restaurant chains that are changing the egg industry in reaction to consumer demand and pressure from activists. Now, I can't say personally that I've ever eaten a breakfast at Taco Bell. 
Nor, in fact, if I think about it, do I know anyone who, who has. In fact, this demands that one must ask, Taco Bell serves breakfast? Anyway, it's a small item, but it's a piece of good news, and we applaud the people at Taco Bell. For our joke of the week, we have the writers of Jimmy Fallon to thank for this. Ivanka Trump said that her father loves eating at McDonald's. That makes sense, considering that the McFlurry is also what Trump asks for when he goes to the barber. And finally, for our anecdote of the week, we would note that a Singapore Airlines flight had to make an emergency landing after emissions from a flock of flatulent goats in its cargo hold triggered smoke alarms. Apparently, the cargo plane was en route from Sydney to Kuala Lumpur carrying 2,186 goats. And no, we don't know how you get 2,000 goats on an airplane. So don't even think about writing us and asking. You can, of course, direct other inquiries to info at radioparallax.com. But uh, back to Singapore Airlines. Apparently, crew members heard a warning indicating that the plane was on fire. The 747 diverted to Bali, where emergency services boarded the craft but were unable to find any trace of fire, heat, or smoke. The inspectors then concluded that a harmless buildup of exhaust gases and manure produced by the live cargo had somehow triggered the alarm. I do have to editorialize. If your alarm cannot distinguish fire from goat flatulence, there may be a design problem. All right, without much further ado, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for banks with the news that the average fee for using an out-of-network ATM has risen to a record $4.52 per transaction over the past year. In Atlanta and New York, fees average more than $5 and can go as high as 8 according to the Wall Street Journal. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for safe havens for the homeless after a bus station in Dorset, England, began blaring bagpipe music over the loudspeaker to keep the homeless from spending the night. Said one station worker, It seems to be doing the job. You try getting any sleep with that going on. That, in fact, is not something that we will try to do. And it was an ugly week for marketing. Or is it for Moscow restaurant patrons? We're not sure, but we're, we are... Fairly certain that in all the years of doing the good, the bad, and the ugly, this is not only one of the ugliest, it's also one of the worst ideas we've we've ever come across. But here's the story. A new restaurant in Moscow is giving what's described as adventurous diners the chance to eat their meals out of a toilet. At the Crazy Toilet Cafe, customers sit on real toilets and eat lavatory-themed dishes. Apparently, the $8 lunch starts with brown mushroom soup served in a mini toilet bowl, followed by swirly sausage on a bed of mashed potatoes, and ends with whipped chocolate ice cream. As we say, one of, if not the worst ideas we've ever run across. The Week magazine quoted the cafe's manager, Inga Yaroslavskaya, as saying that she's certain the establishment will be a success. 
noting, it's not everywhere you can get good food from a toilet bowl at very reasonable prices. You know, Mr. We might have made that our quote of the week. That might be the quote of the year. <laughs> anyway, moving right along, we would note that it was a good week last week for Jeb Bush, while simultaneously being an ugly week, I think, for the nation's media, with the news that Ben Carson got uh, publicly slammed by a person described as his top national security advisor. He apparently openly complained that the retired neurosurgeon just didn't seem to grasp foreign policy issues. The advisor told the New York Times, nobody's been able to sit down with him and have him get one iota of intelligent information about the Middle East. Now, I guess we could have called that bad news for Ben Carson, because it is. But let's go back to good news for Jeb Bush. The person that said this is Dwayne R. Claridge, also known as Dewey Claridge. The part that gets me about this item is the neutral description of Dwayne R. Claridge by the New York Times and others as being Ben Carson's national security advisor. If Mr. Carson is enrolling Dewey Claridge to help him with his foreign policy, well, I would say this represents a masterstroke by the Bush camp. Because it turns out that Mr. Claridge isn't just a 30-year CIA veteran and foreign policy authority. He was also one of the central figures in the Iran-Contra scandal. Turned out back in the 80s, George Herbert Walker Bush was hip-deep in the trading that was going on for arms and drugs and hostages, which was being conducted by our CIA, of which George Bush had previously been the director. The Iran-Contra scandal caused quite a stink. We've talked about a lot of the aspects of that stink on this program in past shows. But the couple points we're going to be led to today, and in this we have the Spartacus Educational Forum site to thank, is that back in the 80s when the House Select Committee to Investigate Covert Arms Transactions with Iran was established, the most important figure on the committee was then the senior Republican member, Richard Cheney. And as a result, George Bush was totally exonerated when the report was published on the 18th of November back in 1987. Now, when George Herbert Walker Bush later became president, at the end of his term, he set out to reward those who had helped him in the cover-up of the Iran-Contra scandal. Casper Weinberger, Robert McFarlane, Dwayne Claridge, Claire E. George, Elliot Abrams, and Alan Fires, all who had been charged with offenses related to the Iran-Contra scandal, got pardons from Bush. You'd have to think of Dwayne Claridge then as someone affiliated with the Bush camp, wouldn't you? So if Ben Carson is dumb enough to use him as a foreign policy advisor, I think that's proof right there the man cannot ever be president. Because I do have to quote the good people at Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on last weekend's show, who after quoting many of Ben Carson's odd statements of late, <laughs> noted that in the future, his brain surgery gigs are, are probably going to dry up. All right, I promised I'd quote from that uh, wonderful piece by Matt Taibbi in Rolling Stone. I guess this would be the time to do a little bit of that. Let's quote what Matt had to say about Jeb Bush. It's hard to recall now, but a year ago, it appeared likely that Bush would be the Republican nominee. He had a lead in the polls, and some beltway geniuses believed Republican voters would favor more moderate choices in 2016, pushing names like Chris Christie and this reportedly smarter Bush brother to the top of the list. Moreover, the Bush campaign was supposed to be a milestone in the history of post-Citizens United aristocratic scale-tipping. 
The infamous 2010 Supreme Court case that deregulated political fundraising birthed a monster called the Super PAC. This new form of slush fund could receive unlimited sums from corporations, billionaires, and whomever else, provided it didn't coordinate with an active presidential campaign. Bush announced his presidency. Bush announced his candidacy on June 15th, but he and his super PAC, Right to Rise, had been raising money all year long. Fifteen days after his announcement, Bush was sitting on top of an astonishing $103 million. A hundred million bucks, a name that's American royalty, and an apparent backing of the smoke-filled room. What could go wrong? Only everything. Bush icebergged his candidacy when he crisscrossed the country in mid-May, trying, to, trying his face in knots in desperate attempt to lay out a cogent position on his brother's invasion of Iraq. During a remarkable five days of grasping and incoherent answers, in which Bush was both for and against the invasion multiple times, it became clear that this candidate doesn't know how to cut his losses and shut up when things go bad. People began, to, people began to wonder out loud if he really was the smarter brother. In Hollis, New Hampshire, there's little evidence of a remade Bush candidacy. His stump presence is surprisingly half-assed. He tries to get over lines like, we've had a divider in chief, we need a commander in chief, which are so plainly canned that they barely register even with the crowd jacked up for any put-downs of Obama. Worse, he issues one of the odder descriptions of the American dream you'll ever hear from a Republican. We need to create a society, he says, where we create a safety net for people, and then we say, go dream the biggest possible dreams. I look around. Did a Republican candidate just try to sell a crowd full of New Hampshire conservatives on a government safety net? He doesn't seem at all like the power-crazed, delusionally self-worshipping lunatic, and that's basically his problem. He doesn't want this badly enough to be the kind of effortlessly sociopathic liar you need to be to make it through this part of the process. And I think I'll tack on what Taibbi had to say about Ben Carson, although perhaps the funniest part was what he said about Fiorina. But about Ben Carson, Taibbi said, Reporters early on this summer thought Ben Carson was a Jerry Kaczynski character a nutty doctor who had maybe gotten lost on the way to a surgical convention and accidentally entered the presidential race. In the first debate, he looked like an amnesiac who might at any moment reach into his pocket, find a talisman reminding him of, who, of his true identity, and then walk off stage. Then he started saying stuff. Now, everyone who's been to an American megachurch recognizes the guy who overdoes the before portion of his evangelical testimony, telling tall tales about running with biker gangs or participating in coke orgies, before discovering Jesus, of course. As some ex-evangelicals have pointed out, Carson fits this model. He claims in his autobiography, Gifted Hands, that he once tried to stab someone named Bob, failing only because he accidentally hit the belt buckle. Soon, reporters were interviewing childhood friends who are revealing what is clear if you read between the lines of Carson's book, which is that he was probably never anything but a nerd with an overheated imagination. Next, BuzzFeed reporters unearthed an old speech of Carson's in which he outlined his gorgeously demented theory about how the Egyptian pyramids were not tombs for the pharaohs, but rather had been built by the biblical Joseph to store grain. Scientists were quick to point out all sorts of issues, like the pyramids not really being hollow and therefore being really sucky places to store grain. And then there was the fact that the Egyptians wrote down what the pyramids were for in, in well, writing. Anyway, it's a hell of a piece. Maybe we'll quote a little bit more from it in future installments of this program, but I recommend, dear listener, that you um, check it out on your own. It's pretty funny. 
And speaking of politics and being pretty funny, let's see what our old pal Mr. Will Durst has to say about this holiday. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words of my absolute favorite holiday of the year, Thanksgiving. Love the simplicity of this one. It doesn't wrap itself in the flag or hide under any religious robes. Purely about getting together and giving thanks, with maybe a little gluttony on the side. Food, friends, family, and football for the five Fs. So allow me to express my gratitude for the fourth Thursday of November, one of the little things that makes life worth living. So here's a couple of other examples of what makes this round-headed middle-aged political comedian dance the thankful boogaloo. Donald Trump, who wants to run the country like a business, which is worrisome because he looks like the kind of guy who would burn it down for the insurance. Carly Fiorina, who was such a bad CEO at Hewlett-Packard, they're still laying people off. Chris Christie for single-handedly disproving that whole too-big-to-fail theory. Bernie Sanders, who has elevated the art of cranky to the level that he should change his website to heyyoupunksgetoffmylawn.com. Hillary Clinton for pretending that she's this 68-year-old grandma befuddled by her email. Where do I put the stamp? Dr. Ben Carson for being as clueless as Sherlock Holmes after a mind wipe. The 22nd Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which since 1947 has kept the American public from making the same mistake more than twice. The entire GOP, which is currently waging a war for its very soul. The GOP soul, a lot like the poetry wing of the Federal Reserve. Martin O'Malley, who won't have to worry about taking a urine test because no performance-enhancing drugs will be found in his system. And finally, the entire Democratic Party for being as clueless as Ben Carson. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody! Thank you, Mr. Durst. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We need to take a short break, after which we'll come back and check out Graham Smith's interview with Lester Lusher. <laughs> 